Welcome to the Church 214 podcast. We're glad that you've joined us today. We hope that you enjoy today's message. And if you'd like to find out more about our church, please visit our website at church214.org. I'm just really thankful to be here to start our, our new series today called Surrounded. Isn't that a cool logo? Can we just shout out Holly right now? Yeah. She didn't, uh, I, I did not know that there was going to be a mountain in the picture, and we're going to talk about a mountain once or twice today. So it's just really cool how God lined that up. But uh, we're, we're in a series called Surrounded. It's our first series of 2023, and it was inspired by my impossibly beautiful, amazing mama, amazing wife, Becca. Whoa! <laughs> I mean, man, that's... Yeah, okay. <laughs> and you guys are, it's a long break, and you don't know how to do church anymore. I don't know what's going on. Wow. Um, but not only is she all of those things, she also hears very powerful words from God. And I want to honor her because her prophetic gifting is significant. Um, it's, it's very different from my own. Uh, and the way we work together is really, really cool. She, she has, I have a very strong gifting to teach, I think. She, on the other hand, does, does not have a very strong desire to get up here and teach, even though she has lots of really good ideas that ultimately make it into message series that you guys hear about. And the reason I want to bring this up is because she uh, kind of has, hears these words from God at kind of a series idea, and she'll share them with me and share them with the rest of the teaching team at like series level, if you will, and then that sort of jump starts. I, I have, you can ask Heather about this whenever you see her next, I have like zero series ideas in eight years of the church, <laughs> um, which I don't know if that's like an indictment of me in any way, but I just don't, I, I like never submit series ideas. I don't feel like I have them. Maybe I have a lot more sanctification to go through, but I do, uh, so sh- she'll share like the series idea, and then, it'll, then, then it like jump starts my teaching gift, and I start to hear from God specifically about messages, like this specific message. And so he brought us together. We make a great team. But this isn't the only instance of that. There's actually many of you in the church that, act, whether you realize it or not, participate in the teaching team. You are hearing from God yourselves. You are spending time in his presence, spending time in his presence here. You're having people over for dinner. You're, you're being a good friend to those around you. You're encouraging people around you. And whether you're sharing those types of experiences directly with the teaching team, members of the teaching team, or you're sharing it with somebody who shares it with somebody who shares it with somebody that gets back to the teaching team, many of you are actually participating in the teaching team and in the preaching from this stage. It may not feel like it because you're not up here holding the mic, but you're doing it right? Ashton has been, as an example, has been mentioned several times as someone who has asked questions or who has had an idea and it made it into a series. Okay, this is not about individual names. This is about most of this family actually participates in the preaching of this church, whether you realize it or not. And that's really, really cool. It's one of the reasons why we structure the team the way that we did. Uh, Actually, God structured the team this way, and we've just been trying to obey over the last uh, eight years or so. And we're going to continue to do that today because it's just so beautiful how this family works. Amen? Amen. Okay, so the, the verse, if I had to boil down 
the series inspiration to one verse, it would be 2 Kings 6, 16. The prophet Elisha says to his servant, do not be afraid, for those who are with us are more than those who are with them. That should be really, really good news. Those who are with us are more than those who are with them. I've titled this message, The Enemy is Surrounded. That's really good. The enemy is surrounded. Okay, you should be thankful that the enemy is surrounded. You're not the enemy, by the way. So you're on the winning side, I hope. Whenever we're going through a trial, it's really easy to focus your eyes just on that situation or, and, and all the sources of oppression that are surrounding you and then be overwhelmed by that. So the antidote is to shift our eyes off of the temporal, off of the physical, and into, onto the eternal. Even when, and in fact I would say, especially when the situation itself is not changing right away. Right, how many have been in a situation that's like, okay, it's only been five minutes, but I'm done with this already. (laughs) It's already been, it's only been a month, I'm done with this already, okay? If, if we want to endure to the end, to draw on strength from the Holy Spirit that only he can provide and participate in our own breakthrough and in the breakthrough for people around us, we must shift our focus on, and our eyes onto the one whose army has surrounded the enemy's army. So, so today, I want to study two passages it, it, it was going to be just one passage, and then it turned into two, so there might be two messages today that perfectly illustrate this idea. Now, we're going to be in 2 Kings 5 and 6 primarily, so if you want to turn in your Bibles or flip in your apps there, um, it's also, some of it's also going to be on the screen. Now, depending on your translation, you might read about, uh, you'll see terms like Aram or Arameans or Syria and Syrians, and you need to know that those terms refer to the exact same people group. So I don't want anybody to get confused. I'm going to be using the term Syria. It's the more modern term. Um, so just as we go forward, if you're reading about Aram and Arameans, don't worry. It's the same people. Okay. Now before we dive into our main text, which I would say is 2 Kings 6, we have to establish the historical context, which means we need to refresh ourselves on what was happening leading up to 2 Kings 6. And the reason why we need to do that is because if we just take this passage in a vacuum by itself, we will learn so much about who God is and what he's doing for us and what we sh- how we should be responding to him. However, if we establish the context, especially the historical context, we're going to learn like 10 times more. We're going to go 10 times deeper. Okay, so what you need to know is that leading up to 2 Kings 6, the Syrians, which are just north of Israel even today. They've been warring with Israel for generations, going all the way back to the time of David. David had many wars with the Syrians. There was wars with the Syrians during the ministry of the prophet Elijah, and now we're in the ministry of the prophet Elisha. War with Syria, again. However, in 2 Kings 5, right, we see a brief period of peace between the two nations. And this chapter is the story of Elisha healing the commander of the army of Syria, Naaman, from, from leprosy. 
have actually preached about this before, back in 2019 in our present series, a little bit. If you go back and look, ch- check out that podcast, you would, you would enjoy it. But we need to cover some additional ground in 2 Kings 5 before we get to 2 Kings 6 today. So 2 Kings 5, starting in verse 1. Here we go. Now Naaman was the commander of the army of the king of Syria. He was a great man before his master and highly regarded, for by him Yahweh had given victory to Syria. Pause. Isn't it interesting that Yahweh chose to bless a pagan man? Very interesting. Thank you, Jared. Very interesting. He, was a, he, he seemed to be, it's, he's described as a great man, highly regarded, but Yahweh gave him military victory for Syria. I find that so interesting that God chose to bless a pagan man. Now, the man was a mighty warrior, but he was afflicted with a skin disease. When the Syrians went on a raid, they brought back a young girl from the land of Israel, and she came into the service of the wife of Naaman, and she said to her mistress, If only my Lord would come before the prophet Elisha, who was in Samaria, then he would cure his skin disease. Now we've got to stop here. Don't you love the faith of this child? I wasn't even going to preach about this part. And then like two weeks ago, I was studying this and studying this and studying this, and this jumped out at me. Because in 2 Kings 6, we're going to read about how Elisha was surrounded and how he responded to that. And I thought that that was the point the example for the message. But actually, the first person that gets surrounded is this girl. This girl had been taken from her family in a raid. In fact, it's possible that her family was killed in this raid. And now she was in a foreign country surrounded by her captors. Now, based on what we read from Naaman, about Naaman, it seems like he was a good man and he probably treated, he and his wife probably treated this girl well. But still, she didn't want to be there. She was surrounded by her captors. And she's immediately like, hey, you got to go see Elisha. Now, this girl had probably never met Elisha. But she had heard how the Lord had worked through Elisha. And we know that faith comes through hearing and hearing by the word of God. This girl had heard about Elisha, and she simply believed. I love that. Not only that, she chose not to fix her eyes on her physical surroundings. She chose to fix her eyes on her eternal surroundings, the eternal reality. How how hard would it be for you to love somebody that kidnapped you? How hard is it for you to love the, the list is already created in your mind. How, the list of people in your life that is really hard for you to love. Those faces should be in your mind right now. Now, you know you're supposed to love them, but you don't want to love them most of the time. How then do you love them? The only way is if you are Loving God. Your eyes are on him. You're spending time in his presence. And whether you directly ask for the ability to love that person well or not, if you 
are plugged in and aligned with where the Holy Spirit is taking you and you are pursuing Jesus with everything that you have, he is going to start to transform your heart in some kind of way that gives you the ability, despite your fleshly desires, to love someone that you have a hard time loving, especially an enemy. So what we see here is that this girl loved the Lord so much. She loved him enough to be able to love her captors enough to share with them the information, the exact information that they needed to unlock physical healing and and unbeknownst to everyone in that situation, eternal life as well. Because they didn't know it was going to result in eternal life at the time, but it was going to result in eternal life at the time. And this is the type of thing that happens when you fix your eyes not on the physical, but on the eternal. For all we know, she spent the rest of her life in captivity. Serving Naaman and his wife. But the shift that took place in the spiritual was about to take place, mirror, and take place in the physical. Because if you keep reading that passage, you see that Naaman goes to the king of Syria and says, I've heard this girl told me about Elisha. I got to go see him. I got to take his chance. And the king of Syria agrees. He sends a letter to King Jehoram in Israel. And King Jehoram is the son of Ahab and Jezebel, which, okay. If you're new to the Bible, just, just, just Google King Ahab and Jezebel, and it's, it's not a good situation. Maybe easily, I would say, the most evil king and queen in the history. So the king of Syria sends a letter to him and says, hey, I'm going to send Naaman, my commander of the army, to you. Um, just so you know, this is an act of good faith. He's not, he's not, we're not declaring war. This is not an act of espionage. And just to kind of help prove my good faith, I'm going to send you some, some gold and silver and 10 changes of clothes. And I have no idea what brand the clothes were, so we're just going to leave that. But I did some math. The amount of gold and silver that he sent would be worth $4.6 million today. Yeah. million today. And Jehoram freaks out because he's not plugged in, because he's not aligned. His, His eyes are not on the Lord. He wasn't raised that way. He freaks out because he's thinking, whoa, look at all this money. And and the conditions are that I heal Naaman of leprosy. And I can't do that. And when I can't heal him, the king of Syria, who is my friend of me at the moment, is going to show up looking for his money and his commander, and he will declare war on me. And that's going to be a problem. Elisha, though, because he, his eyes are always fixed on the Lord, hears about Jehoram's freak out, and he goes, hey, don't worry, send him to me. And you, most of you probably know the story. Naaman shows up to Elisha. Elisha has him dip in the Jordan River seven times. He comes out clean. He's healed. And a miracle. And and Naaman is doing the polite thing, and he's trying to pay Elisha back. You know, he's got a lot of money, apparently. A blank check from the king. And Elisha says, no, 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 you don't need to pay me back. And then we get this really weird passage. Really weird. 2 Kings 5, 17 and 18. 
Then Naaman said, if not, please let a load of soil on a pair of mules be given to your servants, for your servant will never again bring burnt offerings and sacrifices to other gods, but only to Yahweh. As far as this matter, may Yahweh pardon your servant when my master goes into the house of Rimon to worship there. And he is leaning himself on my arm that I also bow in the house of Rimon. When I bow in the house of Rimon, may Yahweh please pardon your servant in this matter. This is weird. And if we don't dive into the historical context, it will just be a weird passage that you don't understand. But I'm telling you, we can't understand this. Here we go. It was a common belief in Near Eastern religion and culture, even Israelite culture, that a God's influence was localized and limited geographically. So even an Israelite would believe this, who believed that Yahweh was all-powerful and omnipresent and all the omnis, okay, that Israel was Yahweh's territory. Syria was not Yahweh's territory. Doesn't mean that Yahweh wasn't powerful enough. Just meant that those people didn't worship Yahweh, so they are not under the influence of Yahweh. They are under the influence of a lesser God, a demonic being, okay? Because that is the path that they chose. Yahweh, still powerful enough to do anything he wants to do, but those people are not under the canopy, not under his favor, okay? So Israel was Yahweh's territory. Naaman's house was in Syria, which means it was not in Yahweh's territory. But he has this healing experience, and he decides from that point forward, Yahweh is the one true God. I'm only going to worship him from now on, but he's got to go back home. So there's a lot of, so he asks for some dirt, which is a really weird thing to ask for. And there's a lot of theories as to what he did with this dirt. We don't really know for sure, but the one that I've landed on which I think is the most probable, is that he built an altar with it at his house back home so that any future sacrifices that he offered to Yahweh in his heart were actually offered physically on Yahweh's territory, not on Rimon's territory. Now, that's a really weird thing. It's a really weird thing in our, in our context because you can build a church anywhere, right? This is, this is actually kind of where that gets started. Because if you know, the land that this church is on now wasn't so great just a few years ago. Used to be a swingers club. Look it up. Okay? This is so important, you guys. He was going to offer sacrifices to Yahweh on Yahweh's territory, even if it's a square foot. Yahweh's territory instead of Rimon's territory. Now, names are really important. So who in the world is Rimon? Well, Rimon is short for Hadad Rimon, which is mentioned in Zechariah 12, 11. Okay, this is not some one-off verse. This is actually, it's a name for a deity. And these two names are essentially Syrian equivalents for Baal. So if you see Hadad or Rimon or Hadad Rimon, it's just Baal. It's a Syrian word for Baal. And Baal, if you're not familiar, is like the chief bad guy in the spiritual realm in the Old Testament, apart from maybe Satan himself. Like the chief God in opposition to Yahweh and his people. And, he's, and if you ask me, he's a real demonic being, not an idea, and he's immortal. So he's alive and well today. 
operating today, okay? Probably not just in Syria, by the way. And that's why this, it's important that we talk about this. So I want to put some, I want to put some text up on the screen. So you can go to the next slide. There's a mistake in the text. Your translation says R-I-M-M-O-N. That's wrong. And I'm going to submit that it is a deliberate error. Now, please, just stick with me. I know I just said there's a deliberate error in the Bible. That's a a hefty thing to say. I promise it's not quite that bad. The correct word is actually Raman, okay? I love R-A-M-M-A-N. That's an Akkadian word or a Syrian word that means to roar or thunder, which makes sense because Baal was a storm god. But, as you can see, our Bible says R-I-M-M-O-N, which is a Hebrew word that means pomegranate. Now, the scribes and the priests that wrote these texts were not dumb. They were the, usually the, the most educated. And they certainly knew how to translate Akkadian words, Syrian words, Canaanite words, Hebrew words. They understood all the languages. Okay? So this was not a mistake by some second grader who didn't know how to <laughs> differentiate the words. Okay? The author of 2 Kings was an Israelite who would not have wanted to bestow any more honor on this rival God, this lesser God, this created being who is in direct opposition to Yahweh and devoted to the destruction of his people. So he is going to deliberately misspell his name in the text. And this is a, I'm not joking, you guys, this is a form of spiritual warfare. Okay, spiritual warfare is not simply shouting out a demon or preaching or leading where it's, it's not always this showy thing. Okay? I don't mean it sh sh that show always sounds too negative. It's not always signs and wonders. It's not always miraculous signs and wonders. Sometimes it's choosing to write in a certain way because this author understood that names matter, words matter, they carry real power. So the author deliberately, deliberately changed the vowels to get Rimon. So, so now we have Baal the pomegranate instead of Baal the thunderer. And the reason why he would write it that way is so that he would remember to keep his eyes on the eternal reality. And anyone, and he didn't know how long that text would last. He didn't know that we would still be reading about it thousands of years later. He wants everyone to know that reads that text that, yes, Baal is very, very powerful, but he is but a pomegranate compared to the Most High. So we're, gonna, we're only dealing with Baal the pomegranate, not Baal the thunderer. God's the thunderer, okay? God, the Most High is in charge here. This is a form of spiritual warfare, you guys. So if you are a writer, I beg you, consider every single word that you write. Because it can be just as powerful as spiritual warfare as this, thousands of years later. Now back to Naaman. Why was he so concerned about the sacrifices in the temple of Baal? We're just going to say Baal from now on, so Rimon sounds very Sort of like, oh, that sounds like some foreign god. It's Baal, okay? Naaman was well aware that he needed to show loyalty to Yahweh and no other. I talked about this a few weeks ago in the Yadah series. He knew this not because he was an expert on the Old Testament, not because he heard Ike's message, 
okay? He knew this because this was the same standard that had been applied to him his whole life in reference to Baal, right? No one had to explain this to him. He knew that he wanted to avoid the wrath of Yahweh. So in order to do that, he needed to show loyalty and faithfulness to Yahweh going forward. And I talked about this. God's wrath is reserved for his enemies. Who are his enemies? Anything that masquerades as a god, that's not him, and anyone who worships them. And this would definitely include Naaman up to that point. And it would definitely include Baal as a lesser god created by the one true God who is in direct opposition to Yahweh and actively devoted to the destruction of his people. And we know that the standard for righteousness has always been and always will be the loyalty and faithfulness to Yahweh. And Naaman understood this and did not want to risk the wrath of God. He was fine with risking the wrath of Baal now by switching sides. Baal did not love him enough and was not powerful enough to heal him of his leprosy. And Yahweh decided that he loved him enough and he was powerful enough to heal him. And so Naaman's like, you know what? Baal's still powerful and dangerous. Um, He's a pomegranate compared to (laughs) the Most High. So I'm going to risk the wrath of Baal. I'm I'm going to make sure I'm not risking the wrath of Yahweh. Now you might say, okay, okay, so what? If you're still so what me at this point, don't worry. I've got more ammunition. <laughs> There's always more. Naaman didn't have the Old Testament. He certainly did not have the book of Leviticus, which would have taught him how to perform every single sacrifice on which day, the Day of Atonement, Passover, Feast of Booths, three goats here, two turtle doves. You know, he had none of that. He had none of that. Because Naaman grew up in the Baal's sacrificial system. And there was a lot of similarities. All those Near Eastern cultures around each other, they all sacrificed in similar ways. But they were not identical. They didn't have identical calendars of this festival and then this one. And they do, like, you know, the the non-Israelite ones were definitely much more satanic, right? right? We know that. So this is an interesting proposition that, he, that Naaman is bringing forward to Elisha and really to God. So I'm going to summarize chapter 5, 17 and 18 again, but kind of like in my own words. And I'm going to try to better explain to you, this is from Naaman's perspective, what he's trying to say. So Naaman is saying, hey, in my heart, I'm loyal to Yahweh in the spiritual realm now. He has my heart. But I also want to make sure that my actions in the physical realm are loyal to Yahweh as well. Because I know that the physical and the spiritual are connected. But Elisha, I don't know how to be an Israelite. I'm never going to know how to be a good Israelite. I'm going to leave here today and go back home and I'm never going to have a chance to learn how to be an Israelite and sacrifice all the right ways and do all the right churchy things. So... I need you to pray for me. I'm committing from now on. Please, please pray for me and let Yahweh know. I'm going to continue to offer sacrifices, but I'm going to build an altar at my house with dirt from Yahweh's territory so that any sacrifices that I offer on that altar, it's not an altar to Baal. It's actually an altar to Yahweh because it's built with his territory. And even though I don't know Yahweh's sacrificial system and... The, the, the sacrifices I'm going to offer are actually kind of, they're from the Baal sacrificial system. 
So they're not going to look right. They're not going to be at the right dates and the right times and all that stuff. But, but I need Yahweh to know that these sacrifices, they might look like Baal sacrifices, but they're really sacrifices to him and only him. And, and, and when I go into the temple with my king out of respect for him, and he's getting older and I have to kind of support his weight, he's going to bow before this idol, and I'm going to have to bow before the idol too. And I just need you to know that I'm actually just kneeling in the physical. My heart is not kneeling to, Yahweh, to, to, to Baal in the spiritual. I'm only kneeling to Yahweh from now on. Elisha, can you please pray for me? Because I, I understand there's some tension here with how the physical and the spiritual are connected, and it's not always going to look, it's not going to look the right way. And it's not on the screen. But in verse 19, Elisha says, go in peace. Which means Yahweh approves. Yeah. Thank you, Lord. Now, some of you might be getting a little bit angry because it looks like Naaman's getting a pass. I can assure you he's not getting a pass. Guys, I love this because even in the midst of the Old Testament, which is all about these, we think it's all about these rules and religion and an and old covenant. Yeah, we don't, Jesus, new covenant. Yeah, that's what we like. Old covenant, nah. Like, the, sorry, I don't know where that came from. <laughs> There's very clear messages throughout the whole text telling us that the standard for salvation is belief. It's just belief. It's just belief. The standard for righteousness is loyalty to Yahweh. That's it. It's not how well you perform the sacrifices and do it on the right days. It's not how well you perform in church or how many sermons you preach or how many songs you lead worship in and how many chairs you pray over before the message starts or how many kids, how many kids you lead or how many security uh, spots you serve in. Like it has nothing to do with any of that. Okay, all of those stuff, all those things are amazing things, but they are byproducts. They are outflows of a heart that is devoted to Yahweh. That is it. Okay, the salvation comes, the loyalty comes, and as your heart is transformed, those types of things happen. Those things, as awesome as they are, cannot save you, will never save you. They are byproducts of a heart that is turned towards Yahweh. So that is the context leading up to 2 Kings 6. So you can call that an intro or a prelude or whatever, but now we're, now, now we're getting into the good part. 2 Kings 6, starting in verse 8. The king of Syria was fighting with Israel. So he consulted with his officers, saying, my camp is going to be this place. And then verse 9, the man of God, Elisha, sent to the king of Israel, saying, hey, don't go over there. The king of Syria is going over there. So the king of Israel sent to the place which the man of God said to him and warned him. So he was on guard there continually. That, what that means is the king of Israel sent a few scouts to the place that Elisha was like, hey, Syria is going to be over there. The scouts got there. They saw that the king of Syria was there, and they were like, oh, cheat code? Cheat code? Because they had figured out, the Lord is telling Elisha all of the enemy battle plans. So, so now we can, have, we can have a superior strategy. Now, aren't you thankful that you have all of the enemy battle plans and the Lord's battle plans right here? 
You may not know this, but I'm here to tell you today. Somebody needs to hear this today or on the podcast. This book has the entire, not partially, the entire winning strategy and the entire losing strategy. It's all in here. It's very convenient. You would do well to study it. Not read it. Study it. Okay, what we're doing today, what we do most Sundays, in fact, I would say every Sunday, is study, not read. Okay? You would do well to study it. I would do well to study it. 2 Kings 6.11, I love this verse. Then the heart of the king of Syria was stormy. I very sure that the translation you're reading doesn't say that. Your translation probably says, became enraged, very upset, something like that. Those are not wrong translations. Those are weaker translations. The most accurate translation from Hebrew to English is the word stormy, which is kind of a term that I've never really used to refer to anger. Stormy because of this matter. So he called his servants and said to them, can you not tell me who among us sides with the king of Israel? He thinks he's got a traitor. But that word stormy, we're going to come back to that. Remember, names matter. So who was the king of Syria at this time? His name was Ben-Hadad II. Ben-Hadad simply translates to son of Hadad. But if we remember from earlier in the message, Hadad is just another name for Baal, so his name could translate very simply as son of Baal. Not a good connection. And remember, just one chapter before, Ben-Hadad and Jehoram were on decent terms. In fact, Naaman had been healed, so crisis for war averted, right? Wrong. Because in chapter 6, Serious fighting with Israel. So what changed? The same kingdom and the same God that healed his commander. Now in the crosshairs. Well, where was Ben-Hadad's allegiance in the spiritual realm? Who was he worshiping? Whose name did he have? Baal, the storm god. So of course his heart would become stormy. So it would seem that wherever your heart is turned, that thing will become your identity. And the characteristics of that thing will come out of your heart and affect all the world around you to the point where your name, your reputation, your father will become that thing. So let's, now let's look at it. That's, that's from Ben-Hadad's perspective. Now let's look at this situation from Baal's perspective. And I've never preached from the perspective of a, of a pagan god before. Um, so this should be fun. I, I trust it will be helpful. Baal saw in the previous chapter how Jehoram was afraid at first when the letter and the gold showed up, right? Baal saw that reaction. Jehoram was afraid because he knew that if Ben-Hadad chose war, that he would lose on paper. On paper just means trusting in your own strength, by the way. Okay? Did you get that? On paper just means trusting in your own strength. 
We know this from historical documents, from archaeology, from even biblical texts, that, that Ben-Hadad's army was much larger and much better equipped than the Israelite army at this time. So yeah, on paper, it's going to be total domination. So that's why Jehoram was afraid. Baal saw how the king freaked out. But now, because Naaman had been healed, the king felt safe. Well, that sounds like a great time to start a war with Yahweh's people and try to take some of Yahweh's territory when his people are fearful and weak but convinced they are safe. Let me tell you, if you're ever fearful and weak, you better never be convinced you're safe. If you're, if you're fearful and weak, you are the lowest hanging fruit for the enemy. So you better never feel safe. Now listen to me. With as much love as I can possibly muster, I'm not judging anybody who feels fearful and weak. I feel fearful and weak sometimes. You might, be feeling, you might have been feeling that every single day for the last five years. It's okay to feel fearful and weak. Just don't feel safe while also being fearful and weak. Fear comes from the enemy. Weakness comes from the enemy. Those things should not make you feel safe. God is not a source of fear. God is not a source of weakness. You should feel safe with him. So Baal incites his son, Ben-Hadad, to war with Israel. 2 Kings 6, chapter 6, verse 12. Then one of his servants said, No, my lord, the king, but Elisha, the prophet who is in Israel, tells the king of things which you speak in your own bedchamber. Then the king said, go and see where he is so that I can send and capture him. Then he was told to him, look, he is in Dothan. So he sent horses, chariots, and an oppressing army there. Again, words matter. A lot of your translations probably say large army, just an army or something like that. The most accurate translation is the word oppressing army. Very interesting word choice there. Never seen that before. And they arrived at night and surrounded the town. So Ben-Hadad's heart became stormy. He aligned his heart to the God he worshipped, and Baal had started to overplay his hand in the spiritual realm. So Ben-Hadad was overplaying his hand in the physical realm. You might say, why do you say that? Well, he did something really crazy. He sent an entire army to a very small town to get one guy. Like 10 soldiers max is all you need. This town was not a fortress, was not well defended, just a town. He sent a whole army, very wasteful of his resources. But his heart was stormy. And Ben Hadad thought he had a, Baal thought he had a chance to get one in on Yahweh, sneak one in on Yahweh. So the king thought he had a chance. Let's look at some pictures, because this is not a story. This is an account of something that actually happened. Go to the first one, please. This is a hill 
in Israel where the city of Dothan was built on top of this hill, where our perspective is in the valley, right? Remember, the text says that the Syrians surrounded the town, so they would have been here where these people are taking a picture with the city up on the hill. Now, from this perspective, it looks huge, okay? We'll get to that. Go to the next page, or the next picture, please. This is the side of the hill, and you can see ruins here, okay? So the city of Dothan was here, Elisha was here, the Syrian army was here. This is real. You can go here, okay? These are not just stories that someone made up. These are real people in real places that you can go see to this day. This text is real, okay? That's just, that's for free. You can see in the background, though, larger hills, in fact, most people would call those low-lying mountains. Okay, remember the logo? Okay, let's keep going. Second Kings, actually keep that, go back to that second uh, picture. Let's keep that up, that's really cool. Second Kings 6, verse 15. Oh, wait, we got to go to the text, never mind, sorry. The attendant of the man of God arose early and went out and look, the army was surrounding the city with horses and chariots. His servant said to him, oh, my master, what shall we do? And he said, don't be afraid, for more are with us than are with them. Elisha was supremely confident. Then he prayed and said, oh, Yahweh, please open his eyes that he may see. And Yahweh opened the eyes of the servant, and he saw, and look, the mountain was full of horses and chariots of fire all around Elisha. So, in fact, the enemy was surrounded. Let's go to the third picture. This is a drone shot of that hill. It's much smaller when you look at it from this perspective. So, right here on top, you can see the ruins. This, is, this small hilltop was where the town of Dothan would have been. In the valley, all around it, is the army of Syria. But as far as the eye can see, in the background, mountains, the entire mountainside filled with horses and chariots of fire. The army of the Lord showed up, surrounded the enemy army. Don't act like you're surrounded when the enemy is surrounded. Which is all the time, by the way. And I know that's hard. It's very hard. Okay? We're moving into a season of, we're going to do a series coming up called Militant Hope. I feel in this moment maybe just to tease that a little bit. This is what I'm talking about. You're not always going to feel good. You're not always going to feel confident. But there, but there needs to be this militant hope that like, I know that, yeah, that Baal is just a pomegranate and Yahweh, Satan is just a pomegranate and Yahweh is the most high God. And there is a mountain full of horses and chariots of fire surrounding the enemy. My situation is not changing yet, but the, the, the enemy is overplaying his hand right now, which means victory is close at hand. Baal knew he could not defeat Yahweh in a straight fight. Satan knows it's over. 
But Baal was pretty sure he might be able to intimidate God's people into giving up. Remember, remember he sent an oppressing army, not a conquering army. Okay? This, guys, words matter. He sent an oppressing army, not a conquering army. Ben-Hadad maybe thought he sent an oppressing army, or a conquering army, but the author of 2 Kings knew it wasn't a conquering army. It was just an oppressing army. It wasn't going to conquer anything. It might intimidate. Maybe the presence of, of the army might intimidate someone into giving up, but they weren't going to conquer anything because they knew the eternal reality, the eyes fixed on the eternal reality. The enemy knows that he's defeated, but he also knows that you don't always believe that you're already victorious. Okay? And again, I'm not judging anybody. Man, I don't always feel like I'm victorious. But this is the fight. He and his army are hell-bent on taking as many people, many, as many of us, as he can. They cannot win in a straight fight, but they can intimidate you into doing nothing or even flat-out giving up. Don't give up. Now is not the time to give up. 2 Kings 6, 18, they came down to him. This is interesting. The army of Syria is going. And Elisha prayed to Yahweh and said, please strike this people with blindness. Struck with blindness, just as Elisha had spoken. And we focus on that. Oh, man, that's so cool. I wish I could do that. Here's what jumped out to me, and this should also jump out to you. The army of the Lord just made an appearance. Wasn't used for anything in the physical. The Syrian army didn't even know the army of the Lord was there. Their backs were to it. Had they seen the army of the Lord, you know what they would have done? Panicked and ran. Listen, if I see one chariot of fire, I am out of there. If I see a mountainside of chariots, even if I'm surrounded, I'm going to run somewhere. I'm going to try to figure out, find a little hole in the, I'm going I'm to do my best to get out of there. Even if I'm surrounded by horses and chariots of fire, I'm going to try to move. I'm not going to be the one trying to attack Elisha. The Syrian army did not know that that army of the Lord was there. There were two people that knew, Elisha and the servant. Is it possible that that army was there for the servant's benefit and for our benefit? Because the army wasn't used to conquer anything, wasn't used to defeat the Syrians. That army might have been there the whole time, might have been there a week before. Elisha knew. His eyes were already opened. It was the servant that had needed his eyes opened. I love that the army of the Lord just made an appearance. It was, I love how Yahweh, I'm going to kind of summarize the rest of the chapter here quickly. I love how Yahweh handled the situation because no blood was spilled. Sometimes blood is going to get spilled. Listen, Yahweh is not a pacifist. The enemy showed up to intimidate the people of God, but the one man whose heart was fully devoted to God, whose eyes were locked on God the whole time, on the eternal reality, 
was not intimidated even though he was surrounded in the physical. And he stepped toward that army into the hands of that oppressing army. And the Lord struck them blind through Elisha, not through the army of the Lord. And then Elisha leads them into the hands of the Lord's physical army, the army of Israel. But instead of killing them, he feeds them bread and water as much as they need and sent them home in shame. Oh, by the way, the Syrians' eyes were opened before the meal. They still had more guys. They still had a better equipped army. They could have taken on Israel in a straight fight and lost and, and totally dominated, totally dominated. But they gave up, sat down, had their meal of shame and walked home. Because, because how much more intimidated was the Syrian army now? Elisha knows our plans as soon as we make them. He can strike us blind whenever he wants. And their king, for all of his faults and failures, is such a boss that he agrees to feed us and send us home instead of killing us when he had the chance. Almost as if to say, hey, I let you off the hook this time, but go tell your king that if he shows up again, it won't be so nice. And what happened? Verse 23. And the Syrians did not come again on raids into the land of Israel. Now, lest you think that there's a point in your life where the battle actually ends, let me just make, remind you of the reality that you're going to be in this fight to the end. But I don't think that that is in conflict with this passage at all. Because this, the enemy is always going to attack you in a place of weakness. He's always going to attack you in a place of weakness until that weakness is turned into a strength. And then the attacks in that area tend to stop. Now, he'll find another weakness because we have many. And he'll attack there. And then you turn that weakness into a strength. And then he'll find the next one. Okay, so that, this is why the battle lasts to the end. Okay, but the reason why we have stories like this is because we, so that we can have hope that here is something in my life that is currently a weakness, but by the power of God, it can be turned into a strength and the enemy will no longer come on raids into that area again. And you might be saying, okay, Phil, I'm, but I'm not Elisha. I, I didn't get a double portion of Elijah's spirit. I, haven't done four, I didn't do 14 miracles on the 14th miracle I did when I was already dead. And you'd be right. We aren't Elisha. But I feel obligated to point out the most important truth, which is that you have access to more power than Elisha did. But I also know the reality is that most of us don't feel more powerful than Elisha most of the time. And if that's you today, you're in luck because we can go all the way back to the Israelites in the wilderness for 40 years. I promise I'm almost done. You see, the wilderness was associated with death because not much could live there, especially humans, for very long at least. So in Israelite culture, 
the wilderness was the domain of the lesser gods. The promised land was the domain of Yahweh, right? A land flowing with milk and honey, fertile farming ground, right? He's the source of all life. The wilderness, the desert, that's death. The other gods, that's their dominion. So for 40 years, the Israelites were forced to wander in the wilderness because of their sin, because of their doubt. Where the gods had dominion. But Yahweh protected them because his presence was with them. Even though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil. When David wrote Psalm 23, yes, he was writing about his own personal metaphorical valley of the shadow of death, but he was also referencing long ago when his ancestors were literally walking through the valley of the shadow of death in the domain of these gods that would do them harm, but they feared no evil because Yahweh was with them. I hope you read Psalm 23 differently from now on. They had the pillar of cloud by day and the pillar of fire by night, which is really intense for a compass, right? They followed wherever those things led. That's, that's it's a little bit overkill for a compass. And it didn't stop them from sinning and complaining because they got used to it after about a month and they did their own thing anyway and went off the rails. So what was the purpose of it? Is it possible it was more than a reminder of Yahweh's presence to the people? Is it possible it was more than a compass showing them where to go in the desert? They kind of just went in circles anyway. After a while, they probably figured it out. Now, the pillar of cloud and the pillar of fire wasn't just for the people. It was for those gods in the wilderness. Constantly signaling to those lesser gods who had dominion in the wilderness, back off, the Most High and his people are on the move. That generation that sinned and had to die in the wilderness had zero chance of their physical surroundings ever changing. God himself promised, you're going to die in the wilderness. But he still protected them and sustained them in the physical and spiritual realms. If you are thinking of giving up, I would ask you to consider that generation in the wilderness because God has not promised that you must die in the wilderness. And if, he had, if that's not the plan for you, then that means there's how much more does he have for you? I would want to find out if I was you. As the physical and spiritual realms are connected and the spiritual attacks that you face in 2023 are no different than those that Jesus faced in the New Testament and they're no different than, than the spiritual attacks that the Israelites faced in the Old Testament, going all the way back to the wilderness and every single attack comes down to the same thing. Whose side are you on? Whose territory are you expanding? You know, I heard one recently that God inhabits the praises of his people and Satan inhabits the complaints of his people. Sometimes we try to say we're not complaining by we use the word venting, right? And there's a very fine line between venting and complaining. Very, 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 very fine line, I think. I'm not accusing anybody of worshiping the enemy. But you may be inadvertently expanding his territory. Is your main weapon to combat your feelings of despair in your situation, as dark as it may be? Is your weapon to combat those feelings of despair, complaints inventing? 
Or is it praise, worship, and thankfulness that the Lord is sustaining you even in the valley of the shadow of death? So now is your chance to respond. So if you need to, if you need to give your loyalty to Yahweh for the first time, please, please come forward and and receive prayer as the band plays this last song. If if that's you, maybe tell somebody that's near you if you're feeling anxious. They would love to come forward with you. They would love to pray for you. They would love the opportunity to participate in the miracle of salvation. And some of you, you're on the verge of giving up. And you need to know that the enemy is overplaying his hand and that victory is close at hand. The army of the Lord is surrounding the enemy army in the spiritual realm, and we're going to surround you in the physical realm. So you can go ahead and come forward if you need to. Um, and as people come forward, if you see a friend, if you see somebody up here, like please come forward and surround them in prayer. Let's anoint them with oil. Let's uh, cover them in prayer in this moment. Jesus, we love you. We're so thankful that you are the one true God. You are the most high God and that you have surrounded the enemy and that any weapon formed against us will not stand because you have dominion here. And there are people in this room right now whose hearts are longing for a solution, whose hearts are longing for your presence. And God, we know that you will meet them here. And you will provide them with the answer that they need, with the solution that they need. It, the, the, the resolution may not come in this moment. It may not come tomorrow. But you will be close to them and you will be able to remind them that even though they walk through the valley of the shadow of death, they will fear no evil because you're with them. So next week, when victory is had, or three months from now, or maybe even several years from now, when victory finally is attained, they can look back on how you protected them and sustained them all the way through, and will be able to proclaim that testimony to all who are around them and testify yet again for the infinite, the, the billionth time that you are God who sees them, who knows them, and is powerful enough to protect them and sustain them no matter what the enemy ever throws at them. In Jesus' name, amen.